Well, this morning we conclude our series in Jonah. And if you'll turn with me to chapter 3 in Jonah. Um, Apologies, I don't have the page, but you can use a church Bible if you will. Um, As you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of a brief kind of overview of where we've been. Ewan's got a a map that he's going to show us just to explain where we've been over the last few weeks. The story so far is Jonah from Geth Hefer was given a task by God. That task was to preach in Nineveh against the wickedness of the people. Jonah decides that he doesn't want to do it, so flees, heads down to Joppa, boards a boat in Joppa and heads towards Tarshish. He simply didn't want to do this plan and he wanted to run away as far as he could. On this journey, God intervenes, as you can see the little boat halfway through, or maybe a quarter way through the sea there, intervenes, brings a storm. The storm is so strong that it threatens to break up the boat. The inevitable happens and the crew decide to throw Jonah overboard. And the crew is saved as the storm is calmed, but Jonah, we were left in chapter 1, was sinking to his death. But then in chapter 2, we see this huge fish that we all know about was commanded by God to save Jonah, to swallow him up and to keep him for three days and three nights. We read through um, chapter 2 and learning that Jonah had realized that God was of ultimate authority and his sovereignty was key in all of this. That it was him that commanded the storm, it was him that commanded the fish And that Jonah was saved by God. So Jonah rededicates his life back to God, declaring salvation belongs to our God. And at this, God commands Jonah to be spat back out, or the language to be vomited back out onto dry land. And this is where we pick up this morning in chapter 3 and from verse 1. So Jonah has been just spat out back onto the beach after this turmoil of three days in the fish. Let us just read from verse 1 together as we walk through the passage together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. I feel like I'm competing here. Just throw it at the floor, it's okay. <laughs> I love that Naomi's not even helping you. She's just, she's just laughing. <laughs> I, th- I think Naomi might need to step in here. <laughs> no, you're okay. Isn't it lovely to be a family together in the morning? Shall we read that again? I think we've heard it twice, but we'll read that again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So here we are in chapter 3 and Jonah is given a second chance. I don't know if you noticed, but if you can flick back to the start of chapter 1, the first couple of verses of chapter 3 are almost the same as the first few verses in chapter 1. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness. It is as if these last two chapters, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It was as if chapter 1 and chapter 2 
had almost never happened if you had read it like that. God is almost starting from scratch with Jonah. And he starts right from the beginning, right from the very first command, go to Nineveh. What is interesting here is that Jonah has such a different response. Jonah, in his first instance, in chapter 1, fled, got on a boat, and was in a storm. And in this instance, Jonah obeys the word immediately and heads to Nineveh. Notice, although it's the same command, a completely opposite reaction from chapter 1. Notice also that Jonah doesn't complain. Jonah's a smart man. He's already had a long journey. He's been in a fish for three days. He's now going to make this long journey from the coastline to Nineveh. And depending on where you read depends on whether we're talking 50 miles, 100 miles, or even 300 miles. Anyway, it's going to be a long journey on foot. And Jonah doesn't say a word. He just obeys. He goes. No complaint. He just gets on with it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There is some debate of whether Jonah preached as he walked into Nineveh, as if he got to the city edge and the minute he got there, he preached as he walked for that first day, or whether he walked into the city of Nineveh for a day saying silent, and by the end of the day's journey, that is when he began to preach. So did he preach when he walked, or did he walk and then he preached? I've got to be honest, I don't think it's really all that important when Jonah preached. If you read the commentaries, most will argue over this. Personally, I believe it's more important to recognize that Jonah did not hesitate. He got up from the coast, he traveled to Nineveh, and on the first day he was in Nineveh, he preached against their wickedness. There was no hesitation, no gap, no stalling, no sleeping. He was just straight in there and doing God's will. But I also personally find really interesting in this context that God was only willing to give Nineveh 40 days. The period of 40 days has got quite a a significant religious um, attribute throughout the Old Testament. Just consider these two passages in Exodus. Exodus 24, 18. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. He stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 34, 28. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. You see, 40 days had a, significant, a significance to it. Moses spent 40 days with God looking at what God's law was going to be, spending time with God, spending time away from the people on the mountain. And what God is saying here is, you have walked away from me, Nineveh. You are wicked people. I will give you 40 days. 40 days, that is all I will give you. So the people had 40 days before they would be overthrown, just as Sodom and Gomorrah was in Genesis 19.25. Now, if you look to that verse, Genesis 19.25, it says, Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain. Now, that word overthrew basically means to destroy, that Sodom and Gomorrah would be destroyed. It's the same word here in Nineveh, to be destroyed. But what is also interesting is the exact same word can have two meanings. 
1 Kings in 8.47, it describes an action of turning around, going in an opposite direction. So this word overthrew in the Hebrew is either to destroy or to turn around. So what God was saying here is you have 40 days where the, when you will either repent or you will be destroyed. They have 40 days to understand the preaching of Jonah or they will be destroyed or they may repent. Let's just look what their decision was. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. The response of the Ninevites was exactly the same as the response of Jonah at the beginning of chapter 3. It was immediate. They immediately believed God and they put it into action. It wasn't just an issue of the heart, they put it into action. They fasted. They put on sackcloth. And both of these in the Old Testament were a sign of humility, grief, and true repentance. Consider Nehemiah 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places, confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. By fasting and putting on sackcloth, the people here in Nineveh were truly saying, we repent. They did not want to be destroyed. They repented. They believed God. And it's almost like we've gone through two weeks, three weeks of walking with Jonah through this journey. And surely a smile comes to your face. The people finally repent. Jonah's task is over. But before you cheer too loudly, just take note of chapter 3 and verse 5. And note that it says the people believed God. It doesn't say the people believed in God. The people believed the message. The message was you are wicked. And in 40 days, if you have not repented, you will be destroyed. The people believed the message of God, did not want to be destroyed, and therefore repented. There is no indication that the people of Nineveh believed in God. Equally, there is no indication in the rest of the Old Testament that Jonah continued to preach and teach. There is no indication that the church sprung up. There is no indication that Nineveh continued along this line of repentance and following God. All we know at this stage is the message of God was clear and the people believed it. Can we say that this was lifelong repentance that led to worshipping God? No. But what we can say is that through Jonah's preaching, they repented at that moment. It wasn't just the people that repented, but the king himself repents, emphasizing this from the greatest to the least comment. Let's continue in Jonah 3. This is the proclamation he issued, that's the king in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. 
Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king recognizes the message of Jonah, recognizing that that true repentance is the only way to save Nineveh. He orders the people to fast. He orders the people to put on sackcloth. But more than that, he orders the people to cry out urgently in prayer to stop evil and violence. Do you know what I find interesting is the king here cries out urgently and the people respond and they pray. Yet we have a country that is going through massive political turmoil. We have a world going through huge issues. And when we put out the call to pray, not comparing ourselves to kings, I'm just saying the call urgently to pray for protection from the evil one, it is surprising how few actually come together and pray. But here, the people know if we do not plead with God, we will be destroyed. The king understands that. So did the ship's captain in chapter 1. So did the crew. They knew that God has the freedom to do as he pleases. But they hope, they hope and pray that through their repentance and pleading, God will show some form of compassion to them and let their lives, let them off with their lives rather than being destroyed. And here's our wonderful God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them destruction he had threatened. You see, our God hears the cries. He hears the pleas. He saw the repentance and he relented. Isn't that an amazing God? That he sees the people change their lives and he says, I will not destroy, you may live. But it comes of more significance when we read Jeremiah 18 and 7 and 8, which says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. You see, God wasn't just showing his grace. He was showing his trustworthiness. This promise way back in Jeremiah shows that if we repent and seek God, God will relent and he will save our lives. Now Jonah must be overjoyed at this point. He finally obeyed God and finally the people of Nineveh repent and they have not been destroyed. Let's just see what his reaction is in chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That it was what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I don't know about you, but most of us know Jonah because of the story of the huge fish. How many of you knew that Jonah was such a grump? How many of you knew that Jonah got so angry, he said, just kill me that you've saved them? What a Bible character, eh? I I actually can't believe the words of Jonah. 
Jonah is saved by the huge fish. He could have died with seaweed wrapped around his neck, swallowing water, drowning in the sea. God saves him. He preaches. The people repent. The people honor God by worshiping. And Jonah says, kill me now. Take me back to the sea. Strangle me. Kill me. I don't want to see this. And you see, the truth is, we finally learn why Jonah fleed. It wasn't out of fear. It was out of understanding that God is compassionate and that Jonah would go and preach and everything would be great and they would repent and that's all fantastic. But the thing is, Jonah wanted the people of Nineveh to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. He was your modern day righteous man. You sinned, you die. That was his view. And he was angry at God because God would relent and save them. I find it incredibly ironic that this is exactly what God did with Jonah, with the huge fish. But Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with it when we consider the Ninevites. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, waited to see what would happen to the city. After condemning God for not being angry, Jonah's anger is now called into question. Literally translates, what right do you have to be angry? But God gets no response. Jonah has gone in a sulk, sitting at the side of the city, watching them being saved. You can just imagine him seething at the side of the city, seeing these people praising God and praying and being humble and repenting. You can just see this angry Jonah looking over the city. But our God is still a great God. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. I absolutely love this relationship that God has with Jonah here. Jonah's in this foul, stinking mood. And God in his grace just clicks his finger and a plant grows up over Jonah. And I love that we read that Jonah was very happy. This man that wanted to die because the people have been saved is happy because he has a plant over his head. But God, the sovereign God, commands a worm. I absolutely love that God has control over everything, that even a worm would obey God's word. This worm comes up and destroys the plant as quickly as it was grown, it was destroyed. And as you can predict, Jonah's foul mood reappears. Yet again, he is angry. Yet again, he's like, Where is my plant? Let me die. I want my plant back. What a foul mood Jonah's in. And God again chooses at this moment to say to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Yet again we see this. What right do you have to be angry and Jonah's response is pretty much the height of narcissism. I have every right. So much right. Let me die. 
Do you remember I pointed out two weeks ago when we first started in this book how many of us knew the book of Jonah? Most of us had heard about it. Most of us had read about it. Most of us knew about the huge fish. How many of you knew that Jonah was like this? I wonder how many of us grew up hearing this Sunday school story yet not actually understanding that Jonah was a narcissistic, angry man. That he wanted to die because he didn't get his way. After this whole journey we've been through, God finishes it all off with the the last words. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also their animals? Jonah's behavior is inconsistent. He sinned, repented, and was saved in chapter 1 and 2. The plant dealt with an issue of the sun. He was happy. And when it was taken away, he was angry. And God asked here a rhetorical question. We already know the answer to this. God, of course, is concerned with the people of Nineveh. And he treats them exactly how he's treated Jonah. That in their sin, if they relent, he will save them. Jonah has had exactly the same treatment, but he is inconsistent with his responses. And with this few words of God just declaring yet again to Jonah that his concern is for the people of Nineveh. So we end the book of Jonah. We read of nothing else about Nineveh and Jonah. We read nothing else about the conversation between God and Jonah. The only time we see it come up again is Matthew 12, when Jesus uses this story to teach. It's an odd ending, isn't it? We're kind of left in the lurch. Where are the people saved? Did Jonah remain angry? I think the reason that God finishes this with the verses he says is because ultimately, above all, above all these four chapters, above the calamity, the running away of Jonah, the preaching, the most important thing to God is his people. Of course, he is concerned for the 120,000 of Nineveh. So the question really is, what can we learn from chapter 3 and 4? And ultimately, the whole book of Jonah, after we've walked through it over these last three weeks, there's no point in just, as I said last week, reading it through and not understanding and applying it. Instead, let us consider what we can learn for this coming week. I've got four points this morning. The first, God is free to act as he pleases. He can deliver or he can destroy. Did you notice in chapter 1, God's plan in dealing with Jonah was destruction. The boat was going to be destroyed by the storm. All its contents was destroyed as it was thrown overboard. The crew nearly dies and ultimately Jonah is left for dead during the storm. Yet did you notice that Jonah was delivered through the huge fish? Then in chapter 3 we read that the people of Nineveh are going to be destroyed. Yet through the preaching of Jonah they are delivered. In chapter 4 A plant delivers Jonah, yet that plant is destroyed. Throughout the whole book, we see Jonah delivered, destroyed, delivered, destroyed the whole way through. And we kind of end with this assumption that Jonah has been destroyed in his own anger. We have a God that is free to act as he pleases. 
He can deliver or he can destroy. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Do you know, some of us will think, why would I worship a God that does what he likes? Isn't that what we've just said that Jonah is, a narcissistic guy? Can't we just accuse God of that? You see, the thing is, we've got the wrong attitude of God. God is not sitting in heaven saying, right, my puppets, do as I tell you to do. Instead, he gives us free will to live our life. And the thing is, he knows what is best for us. He knew what was best for us when he first created us. He looked at the man Adam and said, this was not good. The only time in creation he says, this is not good. Why? Because he was alone. So he gave Adam Eve. God knew what is good for man. And God still knows, God has always known what is good for you in each one of your lives. And I was speaking to someone this week and we were talking about this ability to destroy things. That is how much God loves you. That when you take a wrong direction, that when you turn your back on God, when you just do your own thing, God is willing and able to destroy that thing to bring you back to him. Because God knows what is best for you. What a loving God that he is willing to do that. I was trying to think of an example. All this week I've been trying to think of an example for this. And the only thing that can come to my mind, the only thing in my life that it can come to my mind where this has happened so obviously is at the age of 13 losing my dad. Our whole family was destroyed at that moment. Our whole life, all our plans, everything we were aiming for was destroyed. I was great at sport. I was great at education. I was going to succeed somehow. I was going to make sure that happened. My brother was already in an apprenticeship and he was doing great. My mom was expanding in her work and she was getting promoted constantly. My dad was witnessing to people in the town and people were being saved. Yet in one day, one death, everything was destroyed. Yet through that, I was taught that every day may be your last. And I changed the path that I walked on. I changed what I was aiming for. And I stand here as a Christian and as a pastor because of that moment. Because in that moment, God destroyed in me the passions and desire to own a business, to have money, to have success, and instead put in me a desire to serve him even till my last day. God knows what is best for us, and he will enact that out because it pleases him. He can deliver and he can also destroy. Second point, beware the sin of anger. It is ugly and leads to destruction. Do you love Jonah? In all honesty, when we started this book, I'm sure most of you would have put your hands up and said, yeah, Jonah's a great character, saved by the fish, preached in Nineveh, people repented, great. How many of you love him after reading chapter 4? This great Bible character we've had in front of us, now a seething, angry man in the sun. Anger is ugly. Anger can consume you. Anger makes life itself seem worthless. 
It's hard to love Jonah. It's hard to even feel compassion for Jonah when he's this angry. Anger has the ability to take hold of our lives and the people around us and destroy it. Billy Graham wrote, hot heads and cold hearts never solved anything. You see, the thing is, one of the biggest lessons we can learn from Jonah is if you are an angry person, now is the time to deal with it. Now is the time to say that anger will not be a thing of your life. Charles Spurgeon wrote, do not say, I cannot help having a temper. How many of us have used that excuse? I can't help it. You did it. You made me angry. I can't help it. You cut in front of me. I can't help shouting and raving at my kids because, well, they disobeyed me. Charles Spurgeon says, do not say, I cannot help having a temper. Friend, you must help it. Pray to God to help you overcome it at once. For either you must kill it or it will kill you. You cannot carry a bad temper into heaven. And let's not just take Charles Spurgeon's word for it. Let's take the Bible's word for it. Proverbs 29, 11. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. It is foolish to have rage. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. James 1, 19, 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You see, the beauty of all of this is angry people will still say, but I'm righteously angry. Look at James 1.20. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. There is no anger in your life that God will be happy about. Hot heads and cold hearts never solved anything. I plead with you this morning, if you have anger issues, please, please seek Christ. Because the beauty of our God is He has a solution to everything. We're told that God gives us peace. No anger management class, no big deep breaths are going to take away the sin of anger. But God can with his peace. Point three, true repentance affects not only our heart, but also our actions. Did you see that both the king and the people of Nineveh didn't just say we're sorry, didn't just say we feel bad, we feel guilty. They showed it. They humbled themselves and they stop their evil doing. Their repenting hearts, their desire to repent, came out in how they lived. They sought forgiveness and they stopped their evil actions. Matthew 18 verses 8 to 9 says this, If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. 
surprising how many of us have both our hands and both our feet. But this is not a literal thing we are to take hold of. This is an example of how we handle sin. You see, true repentance will lead us to live a Christ-filled life, which will automatically lead us to get rid of the sin in our lives. And we're told with using this language, it's not to be, all right, okay, I'm going to try and not do this sin this week, and I'll get to day one, I'll reward myself, and get to day two, and praise God I've not sinned. No, how we deal with the sin is we cut it off. We gouge it out. We get rid of it. Whatever we can do to get rid of it, we do it. So in my case, in my household, I grew up with an alcoholic father that ultimately his alcoholism took him to his grave. So I chose to not drink alcohol. Now some would say that's a sacrifice too much. But the fact is, if something causes sin in your life, get rid of it. I've quoted a number of times here and in other churches that one of the biggest issues in the 21st century amongst Christian men specifically is pornography. If you have an issue with it, get rid of your iPad, get rid of your phone, get rid of your computer, get rid of anything that will cause you to sin. If you speed in the car, get someone else to drive. If you swear, hang around with Christian people that don't swear. If you cheat on your taxes, get an accountant to do it for you. If you're angry, bring yourself around people that are peaceable and loving. If you grumble, follow the example of Jesus and grumble no longer. The fact is, true repentance, if you love Jesus, it won't just be in your heart, it will be in your lives. We will see it. You will see it. I recently had a conversation with someone and over the last few months they've been struggling with something. I've been struggling with a sin and I was able to sit down with these people over the last few weeks. What a blessing it is to see someone say, I love Jesus so much that I'm cutting that out of my life. I don't want to see that. I don't want to do that anymore. True repentance affects not only our heart, but also our action. Fourth and finally for the whole book, the life of a Christian is a life of total surrender. The life of a Christian is a life of total surrender. Matthew 16, verses 24 to 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Do you know this is something that keeps me awake nearly every night? Every week that goes by as a pastor, you pour your heart out trying trying your best to communicate God's Word. And it is so encouraging to see people live their lives out and see their hearts change. And it's such a blessing to be in this role to see that. But the thing that keeps me up at night is knowing how many people 
continue to just not get it. It keeps me up at night when I see people choosing paths that may take them further away from God. Using the things that God has blessed them with to build themselves up in their own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. Now I am not saying at this moment, and please do not get me wrong here, I'm not judging you. I'm not following you. I'm not stalking you. I'm not watching your lives. Equally, it is not your responsibility to obey the word of the pastor. As Christians, when we read Matthew 16 and verses 24 to 27, there is no room but to say our lives need to be in total surrender to Christ. And it pains me and discourages me and hurts me when I see people not doing that. Why? Because right at the end it says, God the Father will reward each person according to what they have done. What have you done for Jesus? Have you surrendered? That's the starting point. How many of us are looking forward to the next holiday, looking forward to the new house, the new car, the career, everything that we build up here? And I'm sure we will have all reasons. We need a nice house for our family. We need a career to pay for the family. We need a holiday to have rest. None of that is in Matthew chapter 16. In chapter 16, it says, Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. I cannot emphasize more, and I will never apologize for this. How we live our lives in this world is so important. And as your pastor, I will not stand up here and say that doing all these things and making these things a central point to your life is what God wants. God doesn't want that for you. He wants total surrender, picking up your cross, sharing the gospel, having his kingdom expand so that one day when he rules over everything, all his people are worshipping him, focused on him, the creator God. And for each person that does not hear the gospel, that goes to hell, his heart, his soul is pained. Does your heart pain? Does it hurt? when that opportunity slips by because you've been concentrating on something for yourself. D.L. Moody wrote, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. Let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. Here's the reality check for, I guess, all of us, including myself. For every dream and goal you have, it doesn't even come close to what God can do with your life. Not even close. We learned that God can command a worm, a fish, the wind itself to bring about his will. I plead with you. I pray for you that each one of us will live a life of total surrender. Only in that can we find joy, because only in that do we experience the fullness of God. I was challenged recently, and with this I'll close, 
by Miriam that I tend to spend quite a lot of time on my phone, looking at emails, sending messages, phoning folks, and just constantly working, a bit of a workaholic. And recently I've been complaining <clears throat> because Abby and Eve won't come to me. When I want to hug them, they've run away. Now, most dads think it's probably because they're gruff and they're, I throw Abby up in the air and all this sort of stuff. Maybe she doesn't want that anymore. But yesterday, I was looking at my phone in the car, not driving. And Abby's talking to me, and I don't even notice. I'm too busy looking at an email about service leading to even notice that my daughter wants to talk to me. And then it dawns on me. I've spent so much time fulfilling my role, fulfilling the thing I want in my phone, in my messages, in my emails, that I miss the beauty of my two-year-old daughter wanting to say, are you okay, Daddy? Is the car, Daddy? That's what we're like with God. We can be so focused on what we want in life. Our jobs, our careers, our holidays, our homes, our success. And God is saying, but I want to talk to you. I want to live through you. I want to give you great success, not through possessions, but through knowing me for everlasting life. D.L. Moody says, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. Let's pray. Father, we have looked at your word over the last few weeks learning about Jonah. And Father, I first ask for forgiveness that we can rely on our Sunday school knowledge without actually truly knowing what your Bible says. Father, help us to actually know what it says. Help us to study it. Help us not to just rely on a story we heard once. Help us dig deep into it. Find out what it says and help us apply it to our lives. Father, above all, I pray for each one of us, for those listening online, for every one of your children, that we will live a life of total surrender. That through us, humble wrecks of people, that you can make something beautiful. Father, I listened to a song this week and it talks about how even in our brokenness, you are making us diamonds. Father, I pray that your will, which pleases you, will be to make diamonds out of each one of us, to be your children, serving you, loving you, being the example you call us to be. Help us honor your son's sacrifice and his death. Help us never be ashamed of standing true to your word. Help us be unapologetic about how we live for you. Help us live differently. Help us live not for possessions or power or position, but for you. Help us live a life of total surrender. Father, I pray this in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. <clears throat>